You're listening to Retail Disrupted, a podcast that explores the latest industry developments and the trends that will shape how we shop in the future. I'm your host, Natalie Berg. Hello and welcome back to Retail Disrupted. Now, you might have noticed that today's episode looks a little bit different. Today, we are going to be trialing the first ever video version of the podcast. And let me start out by firstly saying this is totally an experiment. I keep hearing that people like to watch podcasts. Now, I am not one of those people. I love podcasts. But for me, the beauty of a podcast is being able to put your earphones in and listen to it as you get other stuff done. But apparently, there are a lot of you out there that like to watch video. So we're going to trial it today. As always, I look to you, the listeners of this podcast, I look to you all for feedback to let me know what's working, to let me know if this is the kind of thing you want to see more of or less of. Are there any specific guests you'd like to hear from or any topics you'd like us to delve into? All of this is really, really helpful to to shape the podcast and make sure that the content I'm pushing out is relevant and interesting for you. So please do get in touch. You can drop me an email or you know send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter, and that would be hugely appreciated. Now, for today's show, I am delighted to welcome Helen Dickinson, the Chief Executive of the BRC, the British Retail Consortium. Helen has kindly agreed to join me today as part of this little experiment. And Helen's name has actually come up a few times on this podcast, so it's great to have her here with me today. The BRC has just launched its manifesto, and Helen is going to talk us through her vision for the future of retail. And she's also going to talk about the changes, the specific changes that the BRC is calling for to get us there. I know a lot of you know Helen, but let me say a few words about her. Now, Helen has been working with retailers for over 25 years. She has been leading the BRC team and setting the strategic direction there for over a decade. In 2016, she was awarded an OBE for services to retail. Helen is passionate about diversity and inclusion. And I know the BRC is doing some really fantastic work in this space. So I would encourage you all to check out the BRC site after this and see the work that they're doing because it's, it's really important work. Helen also acts as the BRC's Social Mobility Commission Ambassador. She participates in the TimeWise Innovation Unit, looking to support more flexibility in jobs, particularly at senior levels. She also supports the Every Woman Retail Ambassadors Program, and she was previously the chair of Working Chance, which is a charity that helps female offenders to find employment. It's such a privilege to have Helen here with me today, and I hope you get a ton of value from this conversation. Let's dive in. Now, today, Helen, we are going to be talking about the BRC Manifesto, which has just launched. There is a lot to unpack, but let's start from the top. So in the document, you refer to retail being the everywhere economy, and you call out Mm. how it's a vital part of the socioeconomic fabric of the UK. It touches all of us. We're all connected to this industry in some shape or form. But as we know, it's an industry that's had its fair share of disruption in recent years, from tech disruption to the pandemic to economic and geopolitical disruption. 
So before we get into the specific changes that you're calling for, I'd love to get your views on the current state of retail and some of the hurdles that retail businesses are facing today. Well, certainly it's, uh, it's been a, a, a challenging few years for a lot of people. And I think that really came to the fore during the course of the pandemic, uh, where the recognition and the realization of the importance of the industry in ensuring that we all stayed fed, that we continue to have access to the goods that we wanted and needed through a, you know, a, a hopefully, she says, fingers crossed, the most significant thing that happened in our lifetime and you know it won't ever ever be repeated but what that really showed was the resilience and the agility that the industry is capable of and perhaps has been a little bit hidden before those moments and what we've seen since then is that significance of disruption has continued because we had the supply chain problems then we've moved into high inflationary environment from a cost point of view. We've now got challenges in the Red Sea following the, you know, the war in Ukraine last year. So, so the ability of, of retail businesses, whatever shape or size or category of product that they're selling to be able to navigate the issues of the moment as well as some of the more structural things that I'm sure we'll come on to in this conversation um, has been has been really, uh, really quite um, a testament, I guess, to all to all the great people who work in to work in the industry. And throughout last year, throughout 2023, retail sales grew, but not by a huge amount. Uh, a lot of that was price rises rather than volume increases. So profits are under a lot of pressure for many businesses. And that cost input, cost inflation isn't has eased quite a bit, but is still there as part of our backdrop as we move into 2024. From a consumer point of view, consumers are still trying to balance their own budgets. So, Consumer confidence isn't that great. It's better than it was, but it's still negative if you look at the um, GFK indicator. So, so we're moving it. We, you know, we still have a backdrop of, of disruption. The uh, the consumer, the customer environment isn't necessarily going to be super super helpful, um, as is always the case in retail. There'll be winners and losers, but there is a lot of structural questions and issues which are really, really relevant as we move into the possibility of an election, hence the manifesto. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I think we're certainly not out of the woods yet. We seem to be moving in the right direction. But um, you called mm -hmm. out um, inflation and cost pressures. And I know a lot of retailers are mm -hmm. citing wage inflation and uh, business rate rises as concerns for this year. And we're, I know we're going to talk about business rates in more detail in a little bit. But before mm -hmm. we do that, Helen, um, I have your manifesto printed out in front of me because I am still very much a, a pen and paper girl. <laughs> and um, I want to jump into looking at the future because you've got a nice visual here with your vision for the future of retail and you've got a one-line summary uh which i'm just going to read out for our listeners which is that um your sort of aspirations for retail is it's for it to become a net zero 
digitally transformed, thriving industry, enabling us to shop where and how we want and providing highly skilled jobs across the country. Now, that sounds great. That touches on a lot of themes, which I'm sure we'll get into. But perhaps you can just start out with a little bit of an overview of um, the retail that the retail industry that you would like to see in the future. Well, it builds on that summary that you've just highlighted. I think the the challenge that we have, and that sort of comes back to why we called the the manifesto, um, you know, un- accelerating this this every day, everywhere economy because you know, the my belief, and I certainly I think is a fairly widely held view, is that there is more potential for the industry, more that the industry could do because of its scale, because it is everywhere, because it, it touches the lives of everybody. I mean, it's the largest private sector employer, that's 3 million people, another 2.7 million people down the supply chains of, of retail just in this country. Um, and so if any future government of whatever color it may be, creates the right environment, the right policy and regulatory framework, the right tax environment that will enable our great, highly respected, resilient, agile, all the things that we were saying before, industry to be able to do more, to go faster, to accelerate towards that that vision of um, a future that I think is one that we would all aspire to, certainly those that work in retail, so more productive higher paid jobs, getting to, to net zero faster than the government's aspirations of, of 2050, to be able to ensure that there is ongoing and quality investment in local communities. So these are, you know, the circular economy, I mean, they're, 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 you know, all of these things are things that many businesses are really trying to do. And in lots of instances are being held back from some of the potential that is there. And that's really what the manifesto is is trying to lay out. It's trying to say there is a great future here, an industry that can be even greater than the one that we have at the moment. And these are just some of the things that will help accelerate us towards uh, that great future. Right. And Helen, let's talk about business rates in more detail, because I know this is something that you're really passionate about. And for me as an outsider, it just feels like a totally antiquated system. And it also doesn't really feel reflective of the way that we shop today, right? Because around more than actually more than 25% of retail sales take place online. And as shoppers, we just want a blend of physical and digital experiences. We don't think in channels you know it's the retailers that think in channels but as shoppers we just you know want that seamless experience and it just seems to me it seems unfair to have a tax system that is advantageous for online retailers while penalizing bricks and mortar stores and i found it really interesting in the manifesto how you talked about the impact on store closures with 6000 storefronts having closed in the past 5 years and uh, what I thought was even more profound was that two thirds of retailers ha- um, have cited the two thirds of retailers that have shut stores have cited business rates as a, a mate- mm. um, having had a material impact on the decision making process. Mm. So, mm. you know, this is a perennial problem. It doesn't seem like there is an easy solution. But what does a reform of business rates look like? 
Well, what a reform of business rates look like it looks like is a burden that is way less significant than the the burden that we have at the moment because it is holding back that investment. And as you say, um, from a from a from a consumer point of view, if people don't think about channels. Um, the challenge, the the big challenge, has always been that from a from a government point of view, they don't think about industries, right? They they think the tax system is based on e- taxing people, taxing property, taxing profits, um, and part of the you know the big issue with the business rate system is that this is a tax that applies before any profits are, are made and. The UK is completely out of line with any, pretty much any other developed country in terms of the proportion of all the business taxes that are raised through property. So if you think of the um, the business tax base of the Treasury, we think, you know, they've got their sums wrong in terms of how much they're allocating to property. And because, you know, a lot of retailers have a lot of property, that burden is falling disproportionately on retail when it should be spread much more widely across the rest of the economy. So, so we're saying think about what that um, that tax system looks like. Bring the burden down um, on the, the physical bit of property, and what you will get in return is more investment in local communities more of those marginal physical spaces, those stores will either remain open or be opened because the the business case will then become that much more viable than it was before. And that then in turn creates local jobs, c- creates vibrant high streets and communities up and down the country um, and gives us all as members of the public, you know, places that where you know we want to go and we want to spend time and that applies as much to 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 retail as it does to hospitality to all the things that um, we want in our local communities so making sure that we have the right um, economics to facilitate that investment is is what we're saying and mm-hmm. and I think a lot of conversations about business rates within the retail industry end up as a conversation about what's happening in retail, whereas actually the part of the reason that it's taken us so long to, to get to this point is that, that the, the challenge is not even just a retail one, it's a it's a broader business taxation one and where, you know, where does the tax burden, the business tax burden in its entirety fall? And at the moment it's falling disproportionately on an industry that basically does not deserve it. Yeah, yeah, that's a really, really interesting point. And I just want to pick up on your point around jobs, because AI was a hot topic last week at the World Economic Forum. And don't worry, Helen, I'm not going to ask you about AI. (laughs) Um, Well, I think it's a great subject. Um, but the head of the IMF at, at the World Economic Forum last week said that AI could impact 40% of all jobs globally for, for better or for worse. So there's a lot of focus on the kind of negative aspect of this in the media. But I think, you know, AI is just going to make us, it is going to make us a lot more productive. And it's also, I think, going to change um, the nature and the, the role of uh, store staff in the future, which is probably a whole other topic. But um, the point is a lot of change is coming. And 
considering, as you said earlier, that retail is the largest private sector employer in this country, what do you think the industry needs to do to ensure that it continues to attract and retain talent? Well, I think that, you know, AI is part of that solution. What we have seen, even before some of the more significant impacts of AI start to kick in, is a real um, evolving nature of the world of of retail jobs. Uh, Certainly, relative to the size of the industry, there are fewer people in retail than they were sort of 10, 20 years ago. And that is because retailers have become more efficient. They have invested in a lot of, particularly across the supply chain technology, uh, logistics, you know, warehousing. um, And what we have seen is, and it's a bit of a sort of, you know, government policy conversation about productivity, but efficiency, which is my sort of layman's terms of, of Productivity, uh, trans, layman's translation of what productivity means, has um, increased in retail faster than it has across the rest of the economy. Wages in retail have risen faster than they have across the rest of the economy. And what that says to me is that, you know, we haven't, again, comes back to the sort of agility, the resilience the ability of the industry to respond to the environment around it. And also just that, how, how competitive it is as well. I mean, do you think that's well, a factor? Yeah, yeah, good point. Very good point. We should have mentioned that right at the beginning. I mean, it is that intensity of competitiveness does give um, give us, again, you know, we're wearing two hats, aren't we? We're sort of, you know, considering what's happening in retail and being shoppers and consumers as well. And that competitiveness makes sure that we with our shopper hat on, you know, get the best value because they're always fighting for for for, for space. But I, I suppose coming back to your question, I think the you know we we are now seeing higher um, higher paid, more productive jobs than we saw in retail in the past. Um, and what AI will do, I think, will it accelerate um, that in certainly in lots of different areas and change not perhaps so much more the numbers but more the nature and the tasks of the um the jobs that do currently sit in retail and so what retailers have to do coming very back to your question is it really you know really think about how to evolve retrain people reskill people um and you know if i wanted to be a bit challenging to to the industry staff turnover in lots of areas is quite high so if we want to retain people we need to you know retool them to be able to do different jobs rather than losing them to other industries and so i think Mm. we need to do more to to invest more in training in reskilling and technology is you know but a brackets significant part of that yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And it's also probably worth calling out that it's uh, it's a really hard time to work in retail, you know, given some of the kind of broader challenges around shoplifting and um, re- abuse towards retail staff. And I know those are topics that you touched on in your manifesto. Mm-hmm. And actually on the podcast last month, I had another industry trade body on um, the Association of Convenience Stores. I had Chris Noyce from the ACS on and he was talking about 
the shoplifting epidemic. And I was just really stunned to learn um, of the scale of the problem. And I mean, it's pretty well documented in the media. And so I was kind of aware of how much of a regular occurrence uh, this has become. But I think what surprised me was just how underreported it is. And in your manifesto, you called out how one retailer um, said that police failed to turn up in nearly three quarters of incidents that were reported. Mm. That to me is shocking. Mm. And, um, you know, there's a huge cost to all of this. There's a, obviously a human cost, but there's also the financial cost because it's costing retailers um, nearly two billion pounds a year. So something has to change. But um, what do you think can be done, Helen, to deter? retail theft and and staff abuse what do you what are you looking for from the government well what we're looking for is is two things really we need um part of the issue with reporting is that so it, it comes a bit circular right the the retailers don't think the police are going to respond so they stop reporting part of the part of the reason why the police don't respond is a resourcing question so that, that's the you know the the um, one of the asks is really to invest more in the resourcing um, and the focus and the prioritisation that um, sits within uh, retail. But because because it's not reported, the, the police say that they don't have visibility of the scale of the problem, and so because they, they don't know what the scale is, they're not investing the resource. So what we need is, uh, as well as that increased resource, is a standalone offence for violence and abuse against retail workers because having it as a standalone offence forces the system to measure and be able to assess the response rates um, as to um, what actually happens. So we are um, uh, asking uh, for those two things. And there has, you know, there's a lot of ongoing discussion with the current government about this issue, uh, who is asking us, the BRC, to help collect some data. We are engaging with the Labour Party as well, because they've already committed to such a, a standalone offence, because they too know how important this issue is. And I, you know, the it's interesting that you mentioned the association of convenience stores because historically, I mean, I've been at the BRC for 10 years, but in the, in the pre COVID days, uh, <laughs> a while ago, a lot, you know, there was, you know, there were a lot of issues associated with age restricted, you know, buying alcohol or cigarettes, or if someone wants to buy a knife, that's another age restricted sales. So this issue was very, convenience stores, supermarkets were quite in the front line. And what we've seen over the last few years is you know, they remain very, very firmly in that front line. But it's retailers of all shapes, all sizes, you know, all sales categories that are feeling the effects of this now. So it is a much more significant societal and um, widespread problem than it than it was historically. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And hopefully, you know, things will start to improve. And um, 
yeah. So if we just if we shift gears, Helen, let's um, let's talk about sustainability and uh, your climate action roadmap. So uh, mm. we know the critical role that retail plays uh, when it comes to decarbonization. And in your manifesto, you called out that one third of every UK citizen's carbon footprint comes from the goods that they buy. So the sector obviously has a huge responsibility here. And also, as you say in the manifesto, um, an opportunity to really turbocharge the UK's transition to net zero. So can you talk us through how you're working with retailers to achieve this and uh, what your policy recommendations are here? So from a, from a roadmap point of view, you know, we um, did some work a few years ago to create the roadmap. I mean, it is literally a roadmap. It has, you know, it has a it has a goal. It has milestones. It has interim milestones. Uh, it's divided into an, um, five pathways that look at, you know, what data that you need to be able to track progress how you influence particularly your suppliers, what you need to do across logistics, what you need to do um, uh, in your own operations, and then finally how you uh, might influence your customers and your employees to make more sustainable choices. So, so the way the roadmap works is that you know, we bring expertise either from within the BRC or some of the partners that we work with to help inform, advise, share experiences across the, the retailers on you know, some of the aspects that sit within those pathways and provide the, you know, the forums and the guidance to, to really help people go faster than they would go on their own. So that is happening irrespective of you know, who's in government and what government does. Um, from, a, from a government point of view, um, the uh, there is a um, there is a work area from the Envi environment department called DEFRA called the Waste and Resources Strategy. So it has a lot in it around recycling of um, uh, packaging, of electrical equipment, of plastic bottles. So there's all sorts of new regulations and policies that are in the pipeline that are either very expensive, may or may not achieve the outcome that is sought. And so one of the areas in the manifesto is making sure that this waste and resources strategy really delivers you know, the outcomes that are being um, set in a way that works, is practical, cost effective, um, and uh, going to work both from retailers' point of view and their customers' point of view. So, so there is a whole policy area around that. Um, and then there is also the other two sort of big areas that are going to be helpful from a policy point of view for, for retail as we move into the certainly the next five years. So you know, sources of renewable energy. So really getting that... Um, plan clear so that you know the business community can work out you know where they should be investing um, and around um, uh, net zero logistics so there's lots of electrical light good vehicles around but for heavy goods vehicles the uh, the technologies aren't clear as to what is going to be the 
um, you know, the VHS versus Betamax route for HGVs, and that is holding back investment. Uh, and so if we can be, you know, if government can set that path and you know, ensure the policies are clear, then again, back to accelerating the um, investment of the everywhere economy, the industry can really um, make a difference on the the transition to net zero, not just of the industry itself, but of consumers that the industry serves and of the country in terms of the country's ambition. Yeah. And, it, you know, sustainability is one of those trends where it's just not going to go away, right? It's, it's, it's here with us and retailers you know, have no choice but to, you know, continue investing. And, and I think it's always challenging for consumers as well, because I think a lot of consumers want to do the right thing and make the right choice. But it's also about, you know, they, they sort of expect the retailer to, um, you know, to be doing the heavy lifting. And also they don't always want to sacrifice the convenience of things like fast and free delivery and everything. So it's, it's very nuanced or the price. Or exactly. The price. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, but really interesting. Sorry, did you want to? Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree. I think, you know, the industry has not just a, you know, a desire, but also a responsibility. People can't, Mm. you know, we as shoppers, we need help to make better choices. There is far too, it's, you know, there are trade-offs that, you know, it is not a straightforward decision about, you know, what, which channel is a better channel, you know, is some cotton really sustainable or not and just you know a sustainable cotton that comes halfway around the world is that better or worse than slightly less sustainable cotton that is you know sourced from a a country that might be closer to the UK so you know these these things are pretty difficult to navigate um, and require Mm. uh, you know a lot of um, um, investment in clarity of what you're trying to do as well as understanding some of these areas where where a lot of the thought leadership is and thought processes are still still evolving so again yeah. it's um it does make it quite challenging for the businesses but i you know everybody is up for the ambition mm. hence the roadmap and the government really has a role to play to to help us get there quicker yeah, no, that's great. And I guess just one final point on based on what you've just said is I think consumers um, with more transparency might make better, you know, they make those better informed decisions because you think yeah. from a consumer perspective today, we have so much transparency when it comes to things like pricing, you know, product availability, product reviews. Yeah. We have so much information at our fingertips, but when it comes to sustainability, it's kind of murky water. So um, yeah, really great to see the progress being made. But if we switch gears here, Helen, I just have a couple more questions for you because I know we've we've covered so much ground already. Um, I'm going to ask you about something that's not in your manifesto, but I thought you would certainly have an opinion on, which is tax-free shopping for international visitors. Mm. Now, uh, just a little recap for our listeners. This is something that was scrapped by the government um, as part of Brexit a few years ago, but there was a lot of noise in the industry to get it reinstated, uh, especially from those luxury brands. I think uh, London-based luxury brands in particular are really you know, feeling uh, the impact. They're sort of more disproportionately impacted than other sectors. And there was an article in the FT just last week saying that international visitor numbers have rebounded to pre-pandemic levels, but the average spend has dropped, has dropped and has been on a downward traje- trajectory, is a hard word to say, um, since uh, for the first half of 2023. So that was the kind of, uh, those were the data points they were looking at. Now, um, looking outside the UK, international spending 
is looking pretty robust in other countries and in France and Italy and Spain. Um, Helen, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think the Treasury underestimated the impact of ending tax-free shopping? The answer to that question is fairly straightforward. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, and I think the actual ending of it was during COVID. So I thought I th because not a lot of people were, were traveling, the impact was considered to be quite small. Um, and I think what has become clear as more data and evidence is available is that actually the UK is losing out to other European markets now that um, you know, international uh, travel has, you know, really, really started to bounce back. And from a government point of view, we did, I mean, there is a very strong, you know, coalition um, that is being led um, by uh, a gentleman called Paul Barnes, who is, um, um, I think the he was the, quoted the, the in the FT article. Umbrella is called yeah. the Association of International Retail, but he, you know he is, um, you know, trying. But he's working with us, with the, the luxury industry, with lots of different players from right up and down the country. And while yes, as you say, you know there is a real um, strong perspective from the, um, the the luxury industry, particularly in London. What the evidence is really showing, particularly now, and particularly since we are outside the EU, if it were reinstated, this would apply to EU shoppers coming into the UK as well. So our opportunity is even bigger than it was in in um, uh, previously, because we would the okay. UK would end up being the only country in the EU where EU shoppers could tax free uh, shop tax free. So. So lots of evidence, um, a government who perhaps has recognised that it needs to be looked at again. And in fact, the Chancellor in the autumn statement did say, you know, when he was standing up and delivering his autumn statement that he would look at it again. Now, he didn't have to say that if he wasn't going to. Uh, so there is uh, some cautious optimism that that may, in fact, be the case. And he decides to change his mind and may or may not do that in the March budget. So it's a very live issue. Mm. We're encouraging people to ensure that um, if they are, in fact, they have to do it by the 24th of January. So if this only goes out on that day, you better get your <laughs> pen out or your email out. But there is a portal to submit um, uh, any any things that people want in the in the March or uh, March budget, so from to feed into government. So we're encouraging everybody to really include that in any submissions that any individual companies might make, because okay. I think the chance you know, we have a window of opportunity with this government now, and it seems that they are changing their mind that maybe they got their numbers wrong before. Mm. One final question for you, Helen. If you had to pick just one thing that the next government could do that would benefit the retailers in this country, what would it be? What would you prioritize? Uh, I would I would prioritize business rates because it has just been such a perennial um, issue for the industry for so long. Um, I would put that top, but I, I suppose my my overarching point 
because that that sounds a bit negative. It sounds a bit, oh, well, here we go about business rates again. But I mean, certainly it is the biggest point that comes up in, in the conversations I I I and a, across a lot of people within the BRC that we have. But my overarching sort of positive to to end on would be would be much more about a different type of relationship with whatever new government so that we really can accelerate this everywhere economy for all the reasons that we've um, we've just been talking about because we have a great industry in this country and the potential to to really drive that you know that digital transformation that local investment that net zero transition that reskilling of people who work in the economy you know such a significant proportion you know that is a that is a real opportunity for a new government because of the scale that the industry has so i would my you know my biggest biggest overarching ask is that um you know we can work with them to take advantage of that brilliant listen helen thank you so much for coming on it's been lovely to catch up with you and great to get your views on retail as always and hope to catch up with you again soon Thank you for listening to Retail Disrupted. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the podcast, please leave a rating or review or share it with others. It really makes a difference.